Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. I think one of the challenges we have as human beings is really thinking that the work of Christ is enough. I mean, you look at different controversies, uh, even in the Reformed world, you think of even the Federal Vision, for instance, not that long ago, where again we, we talk about our own covenant faithfulness, our works adding to the righteous work of Christ. We might say, well, this is a new phenomena. This, this is something that's new for us and we're unique. But I go back to Hebrews and, and it's shocking to me just how again you're, you're finding that in terms of the first century of individuals that may have been contemporaries of Christ Jesus who have actually heard, I mean think about that, who have heard the words of Christ are those who struggle with this. And so it's, it's something that going through Hebrews 10 and trying to figure this out and where to cut it and thinking, man, he's just beating this point home. And then I realized, but it's the author of Hebrews beating the point home, which tells at least me and hopefully all of us something about ourselves. We don't value Christ. And that's not a light thing for me to say. And praise be to God, he's so gracious that he still works with us and doesn't give up on us. But that's really what the author of Hebrews is driving home to our shame. We don't value Christ. And so when we look at Hebrews 10 and wrapping this up, what is really so significant about the priestly work of Christ? Because as I mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, as I mentioned in Hebrews 9, there's that presentation of Christ being sacrificed in the heavenly tabernacle, significance of Christ. Hebrews 10 is now the author sort of taking the implications of Christ and turning to us and saying, okay, so what does the sacrifice of Christ fundamentally mean? How do we fundamentally embrace this? Is this really something that orients us or is it just some sort of neat theological concept that maybe some people believe or don't believe and maybe it's one of those optional things? Well, I think as we look at Hebrews 10, we learn that the priestly nature of Christ is fundamentally essential to understand for our Christian walk. And if we don't understand the priestly nature of Christ and how it applies to us, we are a people to be pitied. And so why is this so important? Well, as we look at this, we'll see first a priestly impossibility, secondly, a priestly guarantee, and last, a priestly sanctification. So let's begin with this priestly impossibility, verses 1 through 4. If you read these verses, you might skim through them and say, ah, you know, we, we kind of know this, you've already said this. We've got to be careful not to be dismissive and, and just say, well, I already know this, we're going to move on. Because when, when we understand the argument that he has been developing, verses 1 through 4 are pretty important. Because the author of Hebrews, while we've understood the Melchizedekian priesthood, Christ is from eternity, 
We've understood the Day of Atonement being the day where it's repetitive, it's done year after year, because it doesn't definitively take away our sin. And so we can say, well, what's he really fundamentally making as a contribution here? If we skim through this, we're going to miss what he says in verse 1. Now, this is a pretty serious thing that he says. He says, for since the law has but a shadow. Think about that statement. The law of God is but a shadow. So we, we hear this and we think, well, is the author of Hebrews saying that there's no moral standards for us now that Christ is redeemed? Is he saying that the law of God is an optional thing for the Christian life? I mean, we read it in our time of confession. Uh, seems that we believe that the law of God continues and reveals to us the holiness of God. But when he uses this language of a shadow, uh, we think of Hebrews 8 verse 5 where we have the Old Testament priest being the shadow of things to come. It's something that we said, it's temporary, it doesn't last, it's not enduring. And so when, when we read that, that the law is but a shadow, hopefully that's something that, that piques your interest, where you say, well, what are you talking about now? We, we understand the sacrificial system, but now you're saying the law is but a shadow? How, how does this work? What's the purpose of this? Well, when the author of Hebrews is, is writing about this, he wants us to understand, one hand, we do have to know the holiness of God. So obviously, uh, there is a sense in which the law of God certainly drives that home and convicts us of our sin. But there's also something else that he's built his whole argument of Melchizedek from Genesis 14, right? And so that's part of the Torah, part of the instruction, part of the law. So obviously he, he sees that as, as inspired and authoritative. He doesn't undermine Moses as a prophet. He certainly sees Moses as a credible prophet. And so there's something being nuanced here that, that's, that's bigger than just saying, well, there's no moral standards for the Christian life. So what does he mean by this? Well, in terms of this contribution... He wants us to understand the law of God being used here is referring to the Mosaic order, the typology of what's going on there, the models that are being used. Tabernacles, sacrificial system, uh, Leviticus with all the, the rules and regulations as to when someone can come into the assembly and when they're not to be in the assembly. Uh, what point is someone clean enough to be part of the covenant people and when are they unclean? So those sorts of rules and regulations, Hebrews is saying, listen, those were merely a shadow. They, they were instructing us. They were teaching us. They reflected the greater reality of where Christ is today. And so we might say, well, why, why is that so important? Because he wants us to understand, as you go on in this verse, that they cannot make those perfect. Another way of translating make perfect is is make complete, make us whole. And so it's really taking this Hebrew concept of shalom. Uh, it's not just God tolerating his people, right? That's sort of what the Mosaic arrangement teaches you. you. You can take these outward things and these outward purities in terms of wounds and, and things, and then you can draw near to God outwardly and have a cleansing. But there's really nothing substantive. It's not 
really uh, God being pleased and having the fullness of shalom. It's just God's wrath might be deferred and might be delayed uh, through these sacrifices. And so the, the language here is the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you got to understand, that order cannot make you whole. It cannot make you complete. It cannot make you who you are redeemed to be. That is bringing us to the place of glory, perfection, uh, resurrection, glory. All those benefits are in view here. The fullness of what we were redeemed to be. We can't come to that conclusion or to that fundamental goal of our lives if we stick with this mosaic arrangement. So the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that the only way this happens is through this eternal salvation. Hebrews 5 verse 9, 7 verse 28, the Son who comes to bring perfection, bring us to completion. 9 verse 9, our consciences cannot be perfected. That is, the inner being of who we are cannot reach the fullness of what we ought to be in terms of our desires. Now 10 verse 1 is calling the same thing to our attention. 9 verse 9, as it applies to us, consciousness cannot reach its fullness. Now we find that the goal of Christ is that we are going to reach the fullness as he places us against the Mosaic order. So the law here is not saying the Ten Commandments. It's not saying there's no regulations. It's not saying that God doesn't lay out for us how we ought to live in terms of norms. But what he wants this uh, church and congregation and us to understand is that those things under Moses that they cherished so much as Israel was in Canaan, as they thought they would reach the ideal, never brought about the completion of what it was to be. Remember what he said in Hebrews 4, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. And so it's, it's that reminder, we're, we're still going to the future. We're going to a place of, of full glory and true shalom, a being in the presence of God. So he wants us to understand that orientation is not going to do it. Now when we look at this in, in terms of verses 1 through 4, and we sort of put this in the context, right? I mean, if this one-time sacrifice would done it, why would they have continued to be sacrificed? So if the Day of Atonement really took away sins, why was it annual? If it's continually done, doesn't that testify to the reality that it's not complete? One-time sacrifice of Christ, therefore, is complete. Verse 3, it's a reminder, so it's driving home that reality. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, if you notice in verse 3, what's translated there where it says a reminder i read it as remembrance that what seems to be echoed here is the words of institution of christ in luke's gospel in luke 22 verse 19 when christ says do this in remembrance of me that this is recalling for us sort of a flip of what we've heard so in hebrews 9 it's here's the sufficiency of christ here's the reality of christ we're looking up to heaven 10 verse 3 we're coming down from heaven and looking at ourselves in a wilderness experience. And now the Mosaic order, instead of showing what would be perfect and, and what was supposed to go to perfection and never arrive there, he's telling us another purpose of this. It shows us our sin. 
So when we think about the Mosaic order in Hebrews, it's saying, do you want to go back to that order? You want to just focus on your sin? You want to be left in your sin? You want to just wallow in your sin and have no escape from it? Saying that's what you're going back to. That is not a place of escape. That is not a place of shalom. That is not a place of life. That is a place that continually condemns and reminds you of how wickedness and how wicked and impure you are and how you cannot draw into the, come into the presence of God on your own accord, on your own account. So he's saying in verses 1 through 4, if you really want to work out the implications of what you're saying in terms of what the priest is doing, if you think these priests of the old covenant are superior because they offer more sacrifices, you're never going to arrive at the goal. You're never going to have shalom. Those priests are inferior. They will not bring about the fullness of our redemption. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you, you stay there, all you're reminded of is you are a sinful individual who cannot come into the presence of God. Now you allow your mind to go there. Think about that. It's pretty depressing to think that I can never come into the presence of God and I'm stuck here. But this is as we go on. The other Hebrews is saying, but now let's, let's contrast what we do have. So we understand where that leads you. It leads you to death, leads you to despair, it leads you to incompleteness. It doesn't lead you to a good place. Because now let's think about verses 5 through 10, who Christ is. Let's go back to this now. Let's move away from who we are and let us now put our focus on Christ residing in heaven. Christ being in the presence of God. These things we've heard from Hebrews 9, being in the heavenly, eternal tabernacle made by the hands of God. So as he invites us to think about the Melchizedekian priesthood, he doesn't want us to dwell in a place where we're just discouraged, where we don't want to come before God. We say, man, we're just wicked individuals and there's no hope. That's where the order of Moses leaves you. Hebrews is saying, now, think about when Christ came into the world. Why did Christ take on the flesh? Remember, in the beginning, we have the fulgence, um, or the full glory and the character of God. So it's basically everything that makes up God, everything that's in God's character is Christ, takes on the flesh, makes a purification for sin. So these things are to come to our attention now and, and be brought to our mind as the author has already laid the groundwork for this. But he applies something to us in terms of Christ. We've heard about Psalm 110 of Christ being uh, the eternal priest and his enemies being put, made a footstool, which is called to our attention here. But going on where he takes Psalm 40, and he applies Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8, and takes these words of David and applies them to Christ. And he applies them to Christ in such a way that Christ is basically speaking this psalm. That's how he's presenting it. Because if you look at the mission of Christ, Christ never specifically says these words in terms of his mission. Now, we, we can go to implications where Christ is conscious of this, certainly. But Christ does not specifically take this psalm upon himself, even in terms of the Pharisees. There's language that he uses to echo this psalm, so he's conscious of it. And this is an important thing to lay out. It's not that the author of Hebrews is an incompetent interpreter of Scripture. It's actually quite the opposite. 
He wants us to understand the fuller meaning. Then when we say that Christ is the word of God, that when Psalm 40 is given, it's as if Christ is saying it. And now you look at this psalm with that backdrop, that this is laying out the mission of Christ. So what is his mission? What does he desire in terms of this sacrificial system? Well, we find where Christ he comes into the world understanding his mission. First, sacrifices and offerings. Uh, these two things, sacrifices, basically just general animal sacrifices, right? I mean, this is just a general word that would cover all the animal sacrifices under the Mosaic order. The offering that's used here in terms of the Mosaic order is more of the food offerings. Uh, so this would be like your peace offering, your thanksgiving offering uh, that you would eat in the presence of God with, with, with the priests. You can read about these things in Leviticus. And so this is basically, in a general sense, laying out the, the Mosaic order, saying, okay, these are things that even Psalm 40, David, Christ is speaking through David, you didn't desire these things. They're not going to take away sin. Uh, it's that reminder that there's nothing that's definitive. But now notice what is applied to Christ. But the body you have prepared for me. So Christ, as we've heard from the Melchizedekian priesthood, he's not the one who offers a sacrifice for himself. He is a sacrifice. It's his bloodshed. Christ is conscious in what it means to take on the flesh. That he's a God-man taking on the flesh that the Father has prepared for him. So it's, it's a human body, second person in the Trinity, giant to the flesh, taking on this body. It's not accidental. It's not arbitrary. There is an intention behind it. So we understand that intention. Now, notice in verse 6, we sort of have a parallel or a repetition of verse 5. And we have now in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So the burnt offerings, when you look in the Levitical law, is a whole um, consumption of the sacrifice. Uh, so as I've mentioned, sometimes for communion, I'll talk about how the priests would eat of some of the sacrifices in terms of sin offerings. There's times a priest can eat of some of the animal. Uh, the best parts are offered to God, but the priest can have some of it. The point of a burnt offering is you've done something so wrong, so immoral, so disgusting that you can't have any of that offering. It's all to the Lord. And so it's a complete, whole offering to God. God doesn't desire that. Even that offering doesn't take away sin. The sin offerings would be like the Day of Atonement, uh, probably called to our attention once again. And in the Day of Atonement, again, it's not really taking away sin. And so we say, okay, so what's the hope? If these offerings that God has prescribed under the Mosaic Law do not take away sin, where is the hope? This is where we go on in verse 7. I have come to do your will, O God. So Christ consciously enters history to fulfill the requirements that the Father has given him. He's doing the will of God. Now there's debate in terms of what's written of him in the scroll of the book. This is as simply as referring to the Old Testament. So basically what the prophets have said, um, Hebrews has made reference to servant songs as we've gone through this up to this point. 
And so this is just simply Christ conscious. He's got to obey God, and he's got to be the perfect sacrifice. And so that's the reality of what's going on here. Now, the author of Hebrews takes this and then continues to basically prosecute this point in verses 8 uh, through 10. And so verse 8, as the Lord is laying this out, what does he mean? Well, as he's talking about the sacrifices and offerings, now the author of Hebrews referring back to where he began in verse 1, according to the law. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, this is the particular laws I'm referring to. So he's saying to the synagogue, you want to go back to this Old Testament arrangement? These things didn't take anything away. Even in the Old Testament, there is a consciousness of what Christ is going to do. The Christ coming to do your will, he's coming to establish the requirements of God. Now notice in verse 10, the beautiful application of this. The application of this is that as he offers his body, he does this once for all. So the contrast from our previous point, the priests continue to offer these sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats, verse 4, do not take away sin. But the one-time sacrifice of Christ certainly takes away sin. Why? Because when we think about Christ being before time, we think about Christ being the one who enters history, we think in the beginning, he's the exact radiance of God, the exact character of God. He is from eternity, makes a purification for sins, and he puts his enemies under his feet, the ultimate victory of what he is to do. And so the, the point that he's calling to our attention right here is a priestly guarantee is that Christ Jesus takes away our sin. Christ Jesus does this. The Mosaic order referring to the sacrificial system is not going to bring this about. The whole Old Testament, speaking of Christ, Psalm 40, it's as if Christ himself is speaking these words in terms of his mission. Now going on as he wraps up this argument, verses 11 through 18, we have here this promise of a priestly sanctification, this, this definitive accomplishment. And so what's going on here? Well, as Christ is the one who enters history. This begins in chapter 8. Uh, as I've mentioned, reaches the, the climax in chapter 9, speaking of Christ in the heavenly tabernacle. Now as we go on, we, we find who these priests are. They are the ones who go and they, they offer repeatedly these sacrifices. But Christ offered once for all. Now Christ is one who waits for his enemies to be a footstool, as we've mentioned. And so right here, as I've made allusion to the introduction, this is definitely making an echo back to that. And it wants us to understand what it means that Christ has made a purification for sin. It means that the definitive day of judgment, day of rest, entering into the Lord's presence and coming into the heavenly tabernacle is guaranteed. That's the contribution here, the wrapping up in these verses. That day is guaranteed. And so we know because Christ has come and made a once-for-all sacrifice, this has been done. And so now when it's called to our attention that he's seated next to the Father, sits down at the right hand of God, that's exactly what he said in verses 1 through 3, or verses one through verse, chapter 1, verse 3. I'll get the words out eventually. This is explicitly what he said. Christ is going to sit down, 
And he's going to do this after making a purification for sin. So as he's seated in the heavenly reality, this is the glory that is ours. 8 verse 1, sat at the right hand of God in the throne of glory. So this is not necessarily introducing anything new, but it's taking Hebrews 4, the promise of entering rest, the significance of Christ seated in heaven, saying here's a fundamental significance. Your future, your glory, your shalom is guaranteed because Christ has done this. Now there's this assurance that he will make his enemies a footstool. This is also something back in one, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 13, uh, citing Psalm 110. So again, he's taking Psalm 110, making this allusion that he's already made, drawing these implications in and saying, now think back to what I said there. Remember how Christ is in this Melchizedekian priestly age? How he's the one who's seated at the right hand of God? How he's the eternal priest who accomplishes this work? This is the reality of what you have. This is your hope. The, the sacrifices, the Mosaic order didn't do that. Israel goes into exile. Israel goes into exile. Israel comes back to the land, rebuilds the temple. Once again, Israel sins, right? There, there's no rest. Here's rest. The author of Hebrews is saying this is a final wilderness soldier. This is a guarantee that it has been done. Now, we go on and, and we recognize Christ has bore witness, right? Psalm 40. So it's the Father who sends Christ. Psalm 40, Christ is conscious of his mission. This is what Christ has said. Now he wants us to understand the other one or the other person of the Trinity who testifies in Scripture. The Holy Spirit has said. Because now he's laying out the predicted work of the Holy Spirit. So verse 5 Psalm 40, telling us the predicted work of Christ, Christ's conscious as to why he takes on the body. So we say, great, Melchizedekian priest has accomplished his work. Now we go down to verse 16, and we're understanding, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit also testifies to a consciousness of his work that is going on. And as we find this reference here, we know that this has been already cited in chapter 8. And so it's called to our attention again. And as it's called to our attention, this is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And Jeremiah is talking about how the Mosaic order, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic economy does not bring about true sanctification. It brings an outward purification, but it's nothing lasting. The application of the Holy Spirit provides something lasting. It will not end. His law is written upon our hearts. We want to do the Lord's will. We're conscious of who we are in Christ. That truly the purification of sins penetrates into the deepest recesses of our conscience. And we consciously understand, I am one redeemed of Christ. I am called to live for Christ. Now he goes on, he cites Jeremiah 31 even further, where Jeremiah goes on to say, I will remember their sins no more. And so the point of this is not that God forgets all of our sins. I mean, we have our confessional documents dealing with the day of judgment. But the point is that these sins will no longer be held against the people of Israel. When Jeremiah, prior to giving this prophecy, he indicts Israel for all the wrongs they have done and warns them of exile, warns them of what's going to happen to them. The fundamental assurance 
is that the people's sins will be taken away, the wrath of God will be appeased, the expiation, the payment for sin, using the Old Testament language, and the atonement of the covering for sin, again, Old Testament language, being applied to the saints in such a way that we will draw near into the presence of God and we will enjoy the fullness, the true shalom of the intention of God's redemption. So notice then, as he wraps up this argument in the beautiful summary statement he says in verse 8, For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So do you see how this section fits together? Verse 4, if this Mosaic order really took away sins, if it really was something lasting, well, then they wouldn't have to continually be offered, right? That, that's the reality of verse 1. It, it would perfect you. you. You would draw near. You wouldn't need more. It says in verse 18, this is why we need Christ and the Spirit. The Father has to sacrifice Him in the heavenly tabernacle. That definitive outpouring of blood must make it so we as sinful people can draw near. The significance of Christ being the presence of God is summarized in this verse. He doesn't need to come again. He doesn't need to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle to make way for us to enter into it. He doesn't need to offer himself again as we concluded in chapter 9. Then when he comes again, he's coming to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not to deal with sin again, that's dealt with. But so we can enter into his heavenly presence. And so the author of Hebrews, in, in a very real way, is turning to the synagogue and saying, do you really want to turn back to that tangible religion? It doesn't last. It's not enduring. It didn't establish Israel in the land. There was exile, exile, exile. There was nothing that lasted. It didn't endure. There wasn't a true shalom. At best, it was God tolerating his people. But he's saying now, we taste the shalom of the kingdom of God as the spirit dwells within us, as we are joined to the Melchizedekian priest, knowing that the Father in heaven is one who is pleased with us, not because of us, but because sin has been taken away. It has been covered in Christ. And so when we ask that question then, what about the priestly nature of Christ? Why, why, why do we fundamentally want to please him? The author of Hebrews is reminding us of our dire situation. And he's laying out not just the typology of the priesthood and the typology of shedding blood, you know, how that pictures the coming of Christ. But it also shows us and reminds us the depth of our sin, that even slaughtering multiple animals is not going to take away our sin. You could slaughter every animal, every living creature in this, in this world right now. That would not be enough blood to take away the wrath of God and to cover for sin. That's his point. But he's saying the one-time shedding of Christ, or the one-time shedding of blood from Christ, has dealt with sin once for all. So the author of Hebrews is inviting us then, as we hear, to draw near to the throne of grace. And where is that throne of grace? In the heavenly tabernacle. Where is our priest? In the presence of God. Because his blood is so perfect, so awesome, 
that is one time shedding of blood, he can dwell in the presence of God. And it's not because he offended, not because he sinned, but he makes it so we, as sinful human beings who struggle in this age, can draw near to the presence of God. We please God then because his spirit dwells within us, convicting us, showing us our sin. This is why we pray, show me my sin, open my heart, convict me, O Lord. May I truly conform to your ways. May I see your ways as higher than my ways. May I value who you are. This only comes in the power of the spirit as we draw near to our great Melchizedekian priest, as we are commanded to draw near to his throne of grace in the presence of God in the heavenly tabernacle that is not made by human hands. That is the place we are called to see ourselves today, even as we eagerly wait for his coming. May our Lord Jesus come quickly. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.